Section 13 of On the Nature of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. Translated by John Selby Watson. Section 13, Book 5, Part 1. Who is able, with mighty genius, to compose a strain worthy of the majesty of things, and of these discoveries of Epicurus? Or who has such power over words that he can compose eulogies proportionate to the merits of him who has left us such blessings, obtained and acquired by his own intellect? No one, as I think, formed of a mortal body will ever be able. For if we ought to speak as the known dignity of the subjects which he expounded requires, he was a god. A god, I say, O illustrious Memmius, who first discovered that discipline of life which is now called wisdom, and who, by the science of philosophy, placed human existence, from amid so great waves of trouble and so great darkness of the mind, in so tranquil a condition and so clear a light. For compare with his investigations the ancient discoveries of others which are called divine, as Ceres is said to have pointed out corn to mortals, and Bacchus the liquid of wine produced from the grape, though life nevertheless might have continued without these gifts, as it is reported that some nations even now live without them. But men could not have lived well and happily without a pure and undisturbed breast, for which reason he, from whom the sweet consolations of existence, now spread abroad through mighty nations, calm the minds of men, seems to us the more justly to be accounted a god. But if you shall imagine that the deeds of Hercules excel his, you will be carried far away from sound reasoning. For what harm would those vast jaws of the Nemean lion and the bristly Arcadian boar do to us at present? Or what injury could the bull of Crete and the Hydra, the pest of Lerna, defended with poisoned snakes, inflict on us at this time? Or how could the triple-breasted strength of the threefold Geryon hurt us? And how could the horses of Diomede, breathing fire from their nostrils, dwelling near Thrace in the Bistonian regions in Ismarus? Or how could the Arcadian birds formidable with their hooked talons, inhabiting the lake Stymphalus, have so much annoyed us that we should think much of their destruction? Or how, I pray, would the fierce serpent, with his stern looks and huge body, that watched as he encircled the stem of a tree the shining golden apples of the Hesperides, have interfered with our comfort, when he lived near the shore of the ocean and the rough waters of the sea, whither neither any countryman of ours goes, nor any barbarian dares to approach. How, I ask, would other monsters of this kind which have been killed hurt us if they had not been conquered and were now alive? Not at all, as I am of opinion." For thus even now the earth is abundantly overrun with wild beasts, and filled with alarming terror throughout the groves and vast mountains and deep woods, but these are places which we for the most part have power to avoid. But unless the mind is purified, what contests and dangers must we incur in spite of our utmost efforts? How many bitter cares arising from lust tear the man distracted by them, and how many consequent terrors? Or what ills do pride, uncleanness, wantonness produce? How great calamities do they cause? And what evils do luxury and sloth generate? Will it not be fit, then, that we should deem this man, 
who subdued all these evils and expelled them from the mind, not with arms, but with words, worthy to be ranked in the number of the gods, especially when he was accustomed to give precepts both numerous and divinely expressed concerning the immortal gods themselves, and to set forth in his instructions the whole nature of things. This is he on whose track I have entered, whilst I pursue his system of philosophy, and show in these expositions how necessarily all things individually continue their existence according to that law by which they were produced, and how impotent they are to break the strong conditions of time and destiny, in which class of things produced and limited in existence the substance of the mind above all has been found to be, and has been demonstrated to be formed of a generated consistence at first, and to be unable to endure uninjured through vast eternity. But I have also made it plain that when we seem to behold him in our sleep, whom life has left, mere images are accustomed to deceive the mind. For what remains, the course of my subject has now brought me to the point at which I have to demonstrate that the world consists of dissoluble matter, and that it had also a beginning, and to show by what means the combination of matter established the earth, the heaven, the sea, the stars, the sun, and the globe of the moon, and what living creatures sprung from the earth and what, though believed to have existed, have at no period been produced. I have also to tell how the human race, with various speech, began to hold intercommunication by means of names of things, and by what process that oppressive fear of the gods entered the breasts of men, a fear which maintains throughout the world sacred temples, lakes, groves, altars, and images of the divinities. I shall besides explain by what force ruling nature guides the courses of the sun and the paths of the moon, lest perchance we should think that these bodies pursue eternal revolutions unrestrained and of themselves, in order to promote the growth of fruits and living creatures, and lest we should suppose that they are guided by any plan of the gods. For if those who have fairly understood that the gods pass a life free from care, nevertheless wonder, meanwhile, how things can severally be carried on, especially in those matters which are seen in the ethereal regions over our heads. They are carried back again to their old notions of religion, and set over themselves cruel tyrants whom they unhappily believe able to do all things, being themselves ignorant what can and what cannot be done, and by what means limited power and a deeply fixed boundary are assigned to every thing. To proceed, then, and to delay you no longer with promises, contemplate in the first place the sea and the earth and the heaven, the triple nature of which, dear Memmius, three bodies, three forms so dissimilar, three substances of such a different consistence, one day will consign to destruction, and the mass and fabric of the world, sustained through so many years, shall sink into total dissolution. Nor does it escape my consideration how new and wonderful a subject it is for your reflection, that there will be an end to the heaven and the earth, and how difficult it is for me to convince you of this with arguments, as it generally happens indeed when you offer to the ear a subject hitherto strange to it, and yet cannot submit it to the sight of the eye, or put it into the hand, the avenues through which the nearest main road of belief leads into the human breast and the regions of the mind but yet I will express my thoughts. Fact itself, perhaps, will bring credit to my words, 
and you will see, perchance, all things violently shaken in a brief space of time with rising convulsions of the earth, which time may fortune with commanding power avert far from us, and may reason rather than reality convince us that all things, overcome by the influence of time, may sink with a direfully sounding crash into destruction. On this subject, before I begin to utter oracles, expressed with more sincerity and with much more true reason than those of the Pythian priestess who speaks from the tripod and laurel of Apollo, I will set forth to you many consolations in learned and philosophic arguments, lest perchance, being restrained by religion, you should suppose that the earth, the sun, the heavens, the stars, and the moon, being endowed with a divine nature, must pursue their courses eternally, and lest you should conceive in consequence that it is just for all those, after the manner of the giants, to suffer punishment for their monstrous wickedness, who by their reasoning would shake the walls of the world, and seek to quench the radiant sun in the heavens, animadverting in mortal speech on bodies which are called immortal, but which in reality are so far distant from divine power, and are so unworthy to appear in the number of the gods, that they may rather be thought adapted to give us a notion of that which is altogether removed from vital motion and sense. For it is not possible that the nature and rationality of intellect should be thought capable of existing in all kinds of bodies whatsoever. As a tree cannot exist in the sky, nor clouds in the salt sea, nor can fish live in the fields, nor blood be in wood, nor liquid in stones, so it is fixed and appointed where everything may grow and subsist. Thus the nature of the mind cannot spring up alone without the body or exist apart from the nerves and the blood. Whereas if this could happen, the faculty of the human soul might rather arise in the head, or shoulders, or in the bottom of the heels, and might rather indeed be accustomed to grow in any place than to remain in the same man in the same receptacle of the man. But since it seems certain and fixed even in our own body in what part the soul and the mind may subsist and grow up by themselves, it is so much the rather to be denied that they can exist out of the entire body and without an animal form, whether in the soft clods of earth, or in the fire of the sun, or in the water, or in the lofty regions of the air. The heavenly bodies, therefore, since they cannot be animated with life, are not endowed with a divine sense. It is not possible, moreover, that you should believe there are sacred seats of the gods in any quarters of our world. For the nature and substance of the gods, being subtle and far removed from our senses, is scarcely apprehended by the power of our mind. And since it has hitherto escaped the touch and impact of our hands, it can assuredly touch nothing that is tangible by us, for nothing can touch another body if it is not possible for itself to be touched. For which reason, the abodes of the gods also must be dissimilar to our abodes, as being subtle and correspondent to their own nature. These points I shall hereafter prove to you with abundance of argument. To say, moreover, that the gods designed to arrange all this noble fabric of the world for the sake of men, and therefore that we ought to extol it as an honorable achievement of the deities, and to believe that it will certainly be eternal and imperishable, and to affirm that it is unlawful ever to disturb from its seat by any force of argument 
that which was established for the human race by ancient contrivance and for perpetual duration, or to shake and displace, though only in words, the sum of things from their basis, and to feign and add other conceits of this sort, dear Memmius, is to be guilty of the utmost folly. For what profit can our gratitude afford to those who are immortal and blessed in themselves, that they should labor to effect anything for our sake? Or what new incitement could induce those who were before tranquil to desire, so long afterwards, to change their former mode of life? For it would seem that he only whom old things offend ought to delight in the things that are new. But in him to whom no trouble has happened in pastime, when he spent life happily, what could excite the desire of novelty? Or forsooth, the life of the gods was oppressed with gloom and sorrow until the genial birth of terrestrial things shone forth? Or again, what evil would it have been to us never to have been born? For whoever is born must certainly wish to remain in life as long as any alluring pleasure shall engage him, but to him who never tasted the love of life, nor was ever in the number of living beings, what affliction is it not to have been born? Moreover, whence was a model or idea for making things, and whence was the notion of men themselves implanted in the gods at first, that they should know and conceive in their mind what they should seek to do? Or by what means was the power of primary particles known, and what they could effect by their change of order and place, if nature herself did not give the first specimens of production? For the primordial atoms of things were driven in so many ways, by so many impulses, through an infinite duration of time, and were accustomed so to be borne and carried forward by their own weight, and to meet in all modes, and to try all endeavors as if to ascertain what their combinations might generate, that it is not surprising if they fell at last into such positions and acquired such motions as those by which this universe of things, through perpetual renovation, is now carried on. But if I were even ignorant what the primary elements of things are, yet this I could venture to assert from the scheme of the heaven itself, and to support it from many other reasons, that the system of things was by no means prepared for us by divine power, so great is the faultiness with which it stands affected. In the first place, of all that space which the rapid circumvolution of the heaven covers, mountains and woods, the abodes of wild beasts, have occupied a vast portion, rocks and great marshes and the sea, which widely separates the coasts of countries, cover another vast portion. Moreover, burning heat and the constant descent of frost deprive mortals of almost two-thirds of what is left, and as to the land which yet remains, nature would still by her own operation cover it with thorns, if human strength did not prevent, which for the sake of a living is accustomed to groan under the stout mattock, and to cut the earth with ploughs urged through it. For unless we, turning up the fertile clods with the ploughshare and forcing the soil, excite it to send forth its productions, they would be unable of themselves to rise into the liquid air. And yet at times, when all things procured with so great labor are green and flourish over the earth, either the sun in the heavens burns them up with violent heat, or sudden showers and cold frosts destroy them, or blasts of wind with violent hurricanes tear them to pieces. Besides, 
why does nature cherish and increase by land and by sea a terrible brood of wild beasts and monsters hostile to the human race why do the seasons of the year bring diseases why does untimely death wander abroad moreover an infant as soon as nature with great efforts has sent it forth from the womb of its mother into the regions of light lies like a sailor cast out from the waves in want of every kind of vital support and fills the parts around with mournful wailings as is natural for one by whom so much evil in life remains to be undergone but the various sorts of cattle herds and wild beasts grow up with ease they have no need of rattles or other toys nor is the fond and broken voice of the nurse necessary to be used to one of them nor do they require different dresses according to the season of the year nor besides have they any need of arms or high walls with which they may defend their property since the earth herself and nature the artificer of things produce all supplies for all in abundance above all since the body of the earth and the water and the light breezes of the winds and the warm heat of which this sum of things seems to be constituted consists wholly of generated and dissoluble substance the whole frame of the world must be considered to be of similar nature for of whatever creatures in mortal shapes we see the parts and members to be of a generated consistence we observe in general these same creatures to be themselves both generated and mortal for which reason when i see the four elements the vast members and divisions of the world wasted and reproduced i may conclude that there was also a time when the heaven and earth had a beginning and that there will be a time for their destruction on these points do not imagine my memmius that i have assumed anything too hastily in supposing earth and fire to be perishable in not doubting that water and air waste away and in saying that the same elements are again produced and augmented in the first place some part of the earth parched with the constant heat of the sun and trampled with the perpetual action of feet exhales mists and flying clouds of dust which strong winds disperse through the whole air part also of the clods is washed off by showers while rivers as they strike against their banks wear them away besides whatever body increases another is on its own part diminished and since the earth which is the parent of all things seems without doubt to be the common sepulchre of all things the earth therefore you may be assured is wasted and is recruited and grows again further there is no need of words to show that the sea rivers and fountains abound with new liquid and that waters flow incessantly into the ocean for the vast deflux of streams from all sides declares it but we must observe above all things that a certain portion of the water is carried off and that it happens at last that there is no superabundance of water for first that part is removed which the strong winds sweeping the ocean and the ethereal sun dispelling it with his rays subtract from its surface and next that part which is distributed through all the earth underneath for the salt is strained off in its passage through the ground and the substance of the water flows back and all meets here and there at the sources of rivers whence it flows in a fresh stream over the earth wherever a passage once cut has borne along the waters in their liquid course I shall now therefore observe concerning the air that it is changed every hour in innumerable ways. 
For whatever is perpetually passing off from bodies is all carried into the vast ocean of air, and unless it were to restore particles back to those bodies, and to recruit them as their substance passes away, all things would by this time have been dissolved and converted into air. It accordingly does not cease to be perpetually generated from bodies, and perpetually to return back to bodies, since it is agreed that all things are in constant flux. The ethereal sun, too, the great fountain of liquid light, floods the heaven perpetually with new brightness, and instantly supplies with a new ray the place of the ray that has passed off. For whatever brightness it first sends forth is, wherever it falls, lost to it. This you may collect from hence, that as soon as clouds have begun to come over the sun and, as it were, to break through the rays of light, all the lower part of these rays is immediately lost, and the earth, wherever the clouds pass, is overshadowed. So that you may understand that things constantly require a fresh supply of light, and that every first emission of radiance is dispersed, nor could objects otherwise be seen in the sunshine unless the fountain of light itself furnished a perpetual supply. Even your nocturnal torches, which are things of earth, your hanging lamps and tapers brilliant with waving flames and showing themselves fat with abundance of smoke, are impelled in a similar manner by the agency of heat to emit new radiance. They incessantly discharge their tremulous rays. They never cease, nor does the light, as if broken off, leave the place dark, so swiftly is the destruction of that flame hastened from all its rays through the rapid origination and emission of new particles. Thus, too, we must suppose that the sun and moon and stars throw off their light through successive generations of beams, and perpetually lose whatever rays are first to pass from them, so that you must not by any means suppose that these bodies maintain imperishable vigor. Do you not see, moreover, that even stones are overcome by time? Do you not observe that lofty towers fall, and that rocks decay? Do you not notice that the temples and images of the gods, overcome with age, open in fissures, and that the sacred deities themselves cannot extend the limits of fate, or struggle against the laws of nature? Besides, do we not see that the monuments of heroes fall, you might even believe that they desire for themselves a time to grow old. Do we not observe that flints crumble from the lofty mountains and cannot endure and withstand the powerful force of even a finite age? For if they were bodies which through infinite ages had sustained all the assaults of time and continued exempt from dissolution, they would not now suddenly be broken away and fall to pieces. Further, contemplate this heaven around and above us, which contains all the earth in its embrace. It produces, as some say, all things from itself, and receives all things when dissolved into itself. But it was a generated body, and consists wholly of perishable substance. For whatever increases and nourishes other things from itself must by that means be diminished, and must be recruited by receiving into itself fresh substances. In addition, if there was no origin of the heavens and earth from generation, and if they existed from all eternity, how is it that other poets, before the time of the Theban war and the destruction of Troy, have not also sung of other exploits of the inhabitants of earth? How have the actions of so many men thus from time to time fallen into oblivion? How is it that they nowhere survive in remembrance, and are nowhere stamped on everlasting monuments of fame? But, 
as I am of opinion, the whole of the world is of comparatively modern date and recent in its origin, and had its beginning but a short time ago. From which cause also, some arts are but now being refined, and are even at present on the increase. Many improvements are in this age added to ships. Musicians have but recently produced melodious sounds. This nature and system of the world, too, of which I write, has been but lately discovered, and I myself, among the first discoverers, have been found the first poet that could express it in the language of my country. But if perchance you suppose that all these arts formerly existed the same as at present, but that generations of men have perished by burning fire, or that cities have fallen by some great catastrophe of the world, or that violent rivers through continual rains have inundated the earth and overwhelmed cities, you must so much the more, being convinced by these facts, admit that there will probably be also a destruction of the earth and the heaven. For since things were affected and shaken by so great disorders and so great dangers, if a more serious cause had then pressed upon them, they might universally have suffered destruction and mighty ruin. Nor do we who now live appear to be mortal, one like another, by any other inference than that we sicken with diseases similarly to those whom nature has removed from life. Further, whatsoever bodies remain eternal must either, as being of a solid consistence, repel assaults and suffer nothing to penetrate them that can disunite their compact parts within, such as are the primary particles of matter, the nature of which we have already shown, or they must be able to endure throughout all time because they are exempt from assaults or unsusceptible of them, as is a vacuum, which remains intangible and suffers nothing from impact, or they must be indestructible for this reason, that there is no sufficiency of space round about into which substances may, as it were, separate and be dissolved, as the entire universe is eternal, inasmuch as there is neither any space without it into which its parts may disperse, nor are there any bodies which may fall upon it and break it to pieces by violent concussion. But, as I have demonstrated, neither is the nature of this world of a solid consistence, since in all compound bodies vacuity is mixed, nor is it like vacuity itself. Nor, again, are bodies wanting which, rising fortuitously from the infinite of space, may overthrow the sum of things with a violent tempest, or bring upon it some other kind, whatever it may be, of disaster and danger. Nor, moreover, is vastness and profundity of space wanting into which the walls of the world may be scattered, or, assaulted by some other kind of force, may be dissolved. The gate of death, therefore, is not closed to the heaven, or to the sun, or to the earth, or to the deep waters of the sea, but stands open, and looks back for them with a mighty and huge abyss. For which reason, since these existing things are dissoluble, you must necessarily allow that they are generated of indissoluble elements. For bodies which are of mortal consistence could not have been able from all eternity to contemn till now the strong assaults of infinite time. Furthermore, since the great divisions of the world are perpetually contending, and are stirred up in implacable warfare against each other, do you not see that some end to their long contest may be assigned? And this end may take place either when the sun and heat in general, having drunk up all the moisture, shall have become supreme, 
a consummation indeed which they endeavor to effect, but cannot yet accomplish their designs, so much do rivers supply, and so constantly do the waters threaten even of their own power to deluge all things from the deep gulf of the ocean. But their threats are vain, for winds sweeping the floods and the ethereal sun dispelling them with his rays diminish their bulk and seem to trust that they can dry up all things before the waters can attain the completion of their design. Maintaining so great a war, they persist to strive with one another for their great objects, and to contend, as it seems, with equal efforts, though, as is reported, fire was once superior on the earth, and water once reigned triumphant over the plains. For fire prevailed, and burnt, and consumed many parts, when the erring and impetuous fury of the sun's horses hurried Phaethon through the whole heaven and over the entire earth. But the omnipotent father, incensed with fierce rage, hurled Phaethon from his chariot to the earth by the sudden stroke of a thunderbolt. And the sun meeting him as he fell, caught up the eternal lamp of the world, brought back his scattered horses, and yoked them trembling to the car, and guiding them in their own path restored and reorganized all things. This, you must be aware, is the story which the poets of the Greeks sung but which is too far removed from truth and reason. For fire may have the superiority, when more atoms than usual of igneous matter have collected from the infinite of space, but afterwards its strength, being by some means repressed, necessarily subsides, else all things, burned up by a scorching atmosphere, would utterly perish. Once, too, as tradition tells, water, having risen in a body, began to have the mastery, at which period it overwhelmed numbers of mankind with its waves. But subsequently, when its strength which had risen from the infinite profound was in some way turned aside and repelled, the rains came to a stand, and the rivers diminished their violence. End of section 13